Well, thank you very much, Brandon, for that warm welcome. Uh, and it's a great joy for me to be with you this evening. I hope it's that all right. Okay, um, we're on all right. Can you all hear me? Good. Has everyone got a bit of paper that I'm handing round? Brandon's got some more at the back. I'm, I made enough, I hope, for everybody. Uh, and we'll look at that in due course. Um, I want to talk tonight, I've been asked to come and talk about the 39 Articles of Religion, which form the confessional basis of the Anglican Church, uh, the Anglican Communion, the Church of England, of course, in the first instance, uh, but uh, by descent uh, over uh, time, uh, the various Anglican churches around the world. To set the scene, every Christian church is based on three pillars. Uh, one is doctrine, that is to say the teaching of the church. What do we believe? Uh, Christians are people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the, uh, the, the burden, if you like, the essence of the New Testament. Men and women who had met Jesus Christ, uh, who had, whose lives had been changed by him, and who went out in, into the world to proclaim that, to confess this, and in many cases to die uh, for their beliefs. So doctrine, what we believe, who is Jesus Christ and what he has done, this is of fundamental importance to us. The next pillar is discipline. Discipline is a word which uh, covers the administration of the church. How do we function? Uh, how do we apply the beliefs that we hold? And that too is a very important thing. Because without discipline, you cannot have organization. Uh, you cannot have uh, a mutual understanding. You cannot function uh, as a body of believers. And the third thing, and in some ways uh, the most important, I suppose, uh, is devotion. Uh, devotion, which is uh, the way in which we relate to God, uh, our prayer life, the, the centrality of our worship, uh, which brings us together, which holds us together, uh, and which bears witness uh, to our common faith in the world. Now, within the Anglican uh, tradition, uh, of course, our devotion is uh, clearly set forth in the Book of Common Prayer. Brandon's already mentioned that this evening, and I think most people who have anything to do with any kind of Anglican church will become familiar with that. Discipline is more of a problem. I'm not going to go into that um, this evening, um, unless you have questions about it later. But uh, within the tradition of, of the Anglican Church, our discipline is perhaps most clearly seen in something called the ordinal. Now, most of you probably have, don't know what that is. But this is the, um, or, uh, or the, these are the, the, the services which are used for the ordination and consecration of our clergy. Uh, and believe it or not, in, in order to become uh, a, a clergyman in the Anglican Church, you actually have to uh, swear certain oaths. You have to take oaths. You have to commit yourself uh, to certain beliefs. And if those who did this uh, were faithful to those commitments uh, and lived up to them uh, across the board, and if there was genuine uh, commitment to those on the part of every, everybody, not just of some, um, I think a lot of the problems we have in our church uh, would go away because people would be 
uh, under a common discipline. This is a, it's a problem, but there we are. But discipline, of course, uh, also has to do with sharing a common belief, a common doctrine, and that's really what I've come to talk about tonight. Uh, the doctrine of our church as set forth in 39 articles. Now, the articles, of course, date from the 16th century. They came out of the period of the Reformation. Inevitably, they reflect that. Uh, people say, well, you know, they talk it's a document of its time, as if this is some criticism. Uh, but I try to remind them, if it weren't of its time, it wouldn't have got anywhere. Um, you know, you have to speak to the time uh, it, that you are addressing. We speak to our time. They spoke to their time. The issue really for us is not that, it is rather the ongoing, continuing relevance of these things to us today. Uh, that the 16th century uh, events uh, which created the Anglican Communion as we know it now um, marked our church, marked our way of confessing our faith, uh, and this remains uh, central to our witness to this day, and we need to understand this. We need to uh, appreciate what this is and how it uh, holds together, how it is consistent in itself, and how it relates to other forms of Christianity. And this takes me to the paper that I've got uh, given you today. I'd like you to have a look at this because I have subdivided the articles. These are the titles of the different articles in front of you, and I have subdivided them uh, as I see it in the way that they are laid out. And the way that they are laid out starts with universal principles, what I have called the Catholic articles. We use the word Catholic as in the creed, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Catholic meaning all-embracing, universal. And these articles deal with matters uh, which are common to all Christians. Uh, or are, are meant to be. If you don't hold to these things, uh, then you really aren't a Christian at all, uh, of any kind. Uh, you know, and so it is important that we stress this. Now, why did the 39 articles begin in this way? They began in this way because in the turmoil of the Reformation, uh, one of the accusations made against those who were trying to change the church, trying to reform the church, was that they had fallen into error, into false teaching, that they were rejecting the tradition which had been handed down from the time of the apostles. And the, the reformers were determined uh, to counteract that uh, idea. And so they put at the beginning the common principles, the things which united them uh, with all Christians, with Lutherans, uh, with Reformed Christians, with Roman Catholics, with Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, everybody uh, together. And this is what they, they are, these eight things uh, that we see. First of all, faith in the Holy Trinity, uh, that God is one, uh, is one God uh, in nature, where you describe him invisible, immortal, all those things. He is one uh, at this level. But he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who live and work in community with each other. And we as Christians are invited to share in that community, in their fellowship, that in the power of the Holy Spirit, who dwells in our hearts by faith, 
Uh, we are united with Christ. In being united with Christ, we can pray to God as our Father, uh, as he taught us to do. So it is intrinsic to our spirituality, to our way of relating to God, that we hold this belief in the Trinity. We also believe, the second article, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is fully God, a God who came into the world, who became a man uh, in order to suffer and die for us on the cross. Why did he have to do this? Because we needed to be saved. Uh, God, only God could do that. But God in himself cannot suffer and die because that's not his nature. He's immortal. Uh, he's impassable. That means incapable of suffering. So how is he going to do this? Well, he does this, of course, by becoming a man, by acquiring a human nature which is able to suffer and die, uh, and that is, of course, fundamental to our understanding of him as our saviour. Thirdly, of his going down to hell. And uh, this may seem a little bit odd. Uh, you know, we have in the uh, creed that, that line, he descended uh, into hell, uh, which modern revision, revisionists like to uh, gloss over. They, they put things like he descended to the dead or something like that, uh, which is very unfortunate because uh, the actual belief here, he descended into hell, uh, what is the importance of this? It is a reminder to us uh, that the coming of Christ into the world is not simply uh, in order to save us, but also to deal with the fundamental problem of evil. Uh, because, uh, you know, you, if you don't get to the root of the problem, if you don't deal with that, uh, then it might come back again to hit you. You know, I mean, you can uh, sort of protect people for so long, but you need to get right to the root of it. And, of course, the root of evil is the rebellion of Satan uh, and the power of Satan in the world and Christ came into the world to deal with that. So the descent into hell means he has gone to the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of the devil, overthrown that. And there is no power in heaven or on earth uh, or under the earth which is capable of resisting his grace and his glory. Then his resurrection. Uh, the, the saving work of Christ is not just his death on the cross, important and essential though that is, it is also new life. It is coming back from the dead. Uh, that he rose again from the dead uh, in order to give us uh, a new life. A new life which one day will be fully realized in our own resurrection. That is fundamental to our faith. Of the Holy Ghost, as it says here, I've, I've taken the language of the 16th century, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is vitally important because it is in and through the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit, that we have contact with God. Um, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that uh, enables us to call ourselves Christians, enables us to have this relationship with God. Then the sufficiency of the scriptures. God has given us uh, a word. He has given us a teaching. He has given us a body uh, of literature, if you want to call it that, uh, that uh, is there to protect us, to guide us. 
The Bible, if I can put it this way, is the constitution of the church. Uh, we are uh, bound to it. Uh, we cannot teach uh, or preach uh, uh, things which are not in it. Uh, we can't go beyond it. Uh, if the Bible doesn't say something, uh, you know, then we have to keep quiet or we have to allow differences of opinion to coexist. We cannot force uh, beliefs on people which have not been revealed to us from God directly. This is important because Christian teaching is not a hidden oracle. You know, it's not something you go to somebody and they reveal the mystery hidden behind the curtain. It is something given to us in a public document, a public statement, open to anyone to verify, to read for themselves. A very important thing. Then the Old Testament. As Christians, we believe that God prepared his people, his people Israel, over 2,000 years before he sent his son into the world and that the coming of Christ was not a turning away from that but a fulfillment of that. You and I are the new Israel in Christ. We have been integrated uh, into, uh, into Israel. Uh, that the promises made to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob uh, are promises which are made to us. Uh, we have inherited these things. We are the uh, the current uh, bearers, if you like, uh, of the covenant which God made with his people uh, nearly 4,000 years ago now. And the Old Testament has to be read in that way. It is a precious thing uh, that we uh, maintain, uh, not as if Christ had not come. We don't live in the, in the Old Testament time, but we read it through the prism of Christ. We interpret it in that way. And then finally, the three creeds, the Apostles' Creed, which you're familiar with, of course, uh, in, in if you go to morning prayer or evening prayer, the Nicene Creed, which we said tonight, which we say normally in Holy Communion, um, and there's another creed, uh, the uh, so-called Athanasian Creed, which you probably are not familiar with, um, and which uh, the revisers of the American prayer book back in the 18th century removed from it, um, because it was too orthodox for them. You know, they were a bit sort of wishy-washy on certain things. And um, they, they left it out, which is a great pity. Uh, but it's there in the Articles of Religion. So those are the Catholic articles, the, the things which are common to all Christians. Then we have the Reformed articles. And it's, you will soon see from the list that I've given to you uh, that the bulk of the articles come under this category. This is because, of course, they were produced at the time of the Reformation. The articles were designed, at least in part, to explain what the Reformation was all about, why it was needed, you see, and what difference it would make in the life of the church. And I've subdivided uh, the Reformed articles into four. Uh, the first uh, section, subsection, deals with salvation, and then you have... Uh, the three things which go together, really, the church, the ministry, and the sacraments. But we'll look at those uh, one at a time. First of all, salvation. Salvation is what the church is all about. Uh, this is why we exist. Uh, we are here because we preach the good news that the human race, which has fallen into sin and error, has been rescued 
by the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. What does this mean? How does this work out? Uh, how do we understand this? Well, first of all, we have to start with sin. Uh, because if you don't know what sin is, you won't know what salvation is. It sounds negative, I know, uh, but you've got to realize that what the difficulty is, what the problem is. Get the diagnosis right before you apply the cure. Uh, you see, and, uh, one of the problems we have in the church today is that people don't like to talk about sin. But if you don't like to talk about sin, if you don't understand what sin is, uh, then you won't really understand who the Savior is either. Because the Savior has come to save us from sin, which you prefer not to talk about or, or don't really understand. So you're not getting it, you see, when you get there. But what is original sin? Original sin is a cutting off from God. Uh, that we are blind, as human beings, to our Creator. Uh, to the, the, the God who made us uh, and the purposes for which we have been put into the world. We simply don't get it right. You see? We have the capacity to understand. We have minds. Uh, we have uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, understanding in a way. But this understanding has been clouded because the, the connection has been broken. You know, it's like uh, taking a, pulling a computer, you know, if you, if you uh, unconnect it uh, from the socket. I mean, the mechanism is still there, uh, but it won't function. You know, I mean, it's capable of it, but unless you're, you're, you're connected, uh, in, you know, uh, unless you can actually switch the thing on, it won't work. And this is a bit like what we are like. You see, uh, we are created in God's image. We, ha we are a wonderful uh, thing which God has made and put in the world. But we are not properly connected to our creator, to the source. Uh, and so it is to reestablish this, to understand the seriousness of this. This is where we start. The next thing, the 10th article on free will. Uh, this is to knock on the head the idea uh, that you can be saved just by wanting to be. You know, that this is something you can choose for yourself. It's not. It's not because none of us has chosen to be a sinner. I mean, I came into the world like that. Uh, this is something which I have inherited. It's not something that I have chosen. And because it's something that I have inherited, it's something I have to live with whether I like it or not. You see, I might say, oh, I'd rather not have it, thank you very much, you know, let's move off somewhere else. But I can't do that, because to do that would be to lie about my true nature. And so I have to face myself, and I have to say, I cannot go back to God. I cannot reconnect with God in my own strength, by my own will, even if I want to. You see? Uh, I'm not able to do that. Only God can do this. He has to break this. Uh, he has to break through uh, uh, this and give me, uh, set me free. You see, because my will, my human will, is in bondage uh, to uh, the Satan who uh, has trapped me in his rebellion against the Creator. Then the next article, Article 11, Justification. Well, this is, of course, the beginning uh, of salvation. What is justification? 
Justification means being put right in the sight of God. If I go to God, stand in front of God, God looks at me and says, you are a sinner. You have no right to stand in my presence. You have disobeyed. Uh, you have turned away. You are blind. You do not understand who I am and what I require of you. But God has put this right by sending his son into the world. And what I have to know and what I have to, to believe is that in him and through him, I can reconnect with God. What I cannot do by myself, I can do because he will unite me to himself. How does he do this? By faith. If I believe, if I accept this, if I give myself to him uh, in this way, then he will uh, do this for me in my life. He will make me justified, righteous, good in the sight of God, not in myself. You see, I, it's not something I have achieved. It's not something I can do uh, in, in my own strength, but something which is a gift from him, a gift which is his righteousness given to me. And this is a very, very important thing because if I am justified, if you are justified in the sight of God, it is not because of what you have done or what I have done, but because of what he has done. And so... We are united in him because our justification is the same. You see, it's not that I've done a little bit more than you have, so I'm a little bit higher up the scale than you are. No, no, no. We're all justified by the same Savior in the same way. This, of course, is brought out in the next article on good works. What is the place of good works? You cannot earn your salvation by good works. But when you have been justified, when you know Jesus Christ, when the Holy Spirit is living in your life, then good works will flow from that. You know, they are the foundation, if you like, of the Christian life. They are a witness to our justification. They are not a cause of it. You see, I can't work my way into heaven. But they are a manifestation of the change which has occurred in me. And then I could go out and live, uh, you see, in the way that God wants me to live. So good works are the result of justification, not the cause of it. And this is why we get to Article 13 of works before justification. And this means that if you do something good, but you haven't given your life to Christ, you know, if you claim... Uh, well, I've done a good thing or something like this, uh, then I, I'm all right with God. You're not. Now, this, is, this requires a little bit of thinking because, you know, an awful lot of people don't agree with that. There are an awful lot of people out there uh, who will tell you, well, I don't go to church, you know, I don't really bother with that sort of thing. But, you know, I do my bit. I'm, I, I'm not a bad person. I'm not perfect. Uh, but I, I, I try to help out and so on. And here's $10, you know, take it away. Uh, and uh, I'll take my chances, you know, when I get to 
the, the, to heaven and uh, you know I'll, I'll just tell St. Peter you know well I did contribute to the church this time uh, and you know you're going to let me in kind of thing you know this, this, this sort of thing and they're going to get a bit of a shock if they're told I'm sorry but you know ten dollars once a year to the communion uh, or to the church fund isn't really enough uh, <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't get into heaven this way and I say this with some feeling because the parish I live in in England, and I'm not suggesting the Advent should try this, but I just, this is a witness, this is true, this happens in my parish. Um, every October, and I, I just got it the other day, they send round a letter to everybody who lives in the parish telling them what they do, you know, how the church does this and does that and does something else, inviting you to go along if you wish. But the basic purpose of the letter is say, please contribute. You know, maybe you'd like to contribute to this. And I wondered about this, and I, I, I went to see the, 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 the rector of the church one time. I said, you know, does this work? And he said, oh, yes. He said, we pay off our budget this way. He said, all kinds of people who never darken the door of the church are quite happy to give money. He said, you know, they're just taking out an insurance policy uh, for when they land up, uh, you know, at the, uh, on the day of judgment uh, and just hoping for the best. Um, sorry guys, this doesn't work. You know, as I say, I'm not trying to destroy the Advent's sort of fundraising drive or anything like that. But, uh, but, but this shows, you see, how a lot of people think this way. They think that they can somehow do something to keep on the right side of God, and you can't. You can't. Uh, because they, the, what is wrong with us is too deep. Uh, it's too... Uh, fundamental, it's too all-embracing. You have to be born again. You have to die and be born again for this to happen. You can't sort of earn your way incrementally uh, into a state of perfection. Then there's the works of supererogation. I don't suppose supererogation is a word you use very often, um, so perhaps I'd better explain what it means. Uh, it means um, going the extra mile. You know the story in the Bible that says that if you're asked to carry a burden for one mile, go the extra one, carry it for two. It's overdoing it. It's adding something more to what is required. And a lot of people think like this too, you see. It's kind of, if you're the sort of person who likes to save, you know, you might do this. You might say, well, I put a dollar away, you know, against a rainy day. And then maybe one day I'll put $2 away, you know, just a little bit extra uh, and so on, because a little bit extra always helps, you know, when you do that kind of thing. This doesn't work either, you see, because you are not saved by works. Uh, the medieval church encouraged people to do this. They encouraged people to sort of give a little bit more of their time, give a little bit more of their money in the hope that, you know, God would look favorably on this and they wouldn't spend so much time in purgatory when they died or they wouldn't go to hell or whatever. You know, it, God would sort of approve of this. And they say, no, this is, this is not the right way to think and certainly not the right way to act. Then the 15th article, it says, of Christ alone without sin. Christ is our savior because he is not a sinner. He is the only human being who was never a sinner. Why? Because, of course, he is God in human flesh. Uh, he, he does not disobey God because he is God. Uh, and so, and this is necessary, you see. Uh, someone who is a sinner cannot save other sinners. 
He can only take your sin and my sin on himself because he doesn't have to pay for his own sin. He doesn't have any sin to pay for, so he pays for ours instead. That's the importance of that. Then the, the sin after baptism. Uh, this again uh, is one of those things. People got the idea that once they became Christians, you see in baptism it represents this, the conversion to Christ, that if you sinned after that, you were finished, you were gone, you know, because uh, you, you'd been cleansed, you'd been cured, uh, and then you fell back into the dirt, you see, afterwards. Well, once that happened, there was no coming back again. Uh, and uh, the, the reformers had to say, no, it's not like that. It's not like that because when we become Christians, we do not become perfect. You see, uh, it's not that we don't uh, continue to sin. We all sin uh, and because we are sinners. But we have forgiveness in Christ. And this is the message of the gospel. You see, the message of the gospel is you don't have to prove yourself in the presence of God. God accepts you as you are. He forgives you. This is what our relationship with him is. It is a relationship of constant, ongoing forgiveness, acceptance in Christ. And so sin after baptism is not fatal. It doesn't cut us off forever. Then 17, predestination and election. I better not talk about election tonight, I suppose, but um, this is a reminder to us that our salvation is something that is present in the mind of God. Uh, it has been planned by God from eternity. God actually wants us to be in heaven with him. Now, don't ask me why. Uh, I always say to my students, I said, you're very lucky I am not God. Some of them think that, you see. But I said, no, just be, uh, just be very grateful that, that I am not God because if I were God, there's no way you would ever be in heaven. I mean, I want a quiet life, you know. Uh, why would I open heaven to people like you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what do you think I am, you know? <laughs> I, I, just want, I just want to go home and, you know, close the door, put my feet up and forget it. Um, but, but this is not God. You see, isn't this, I know I'm putting this in a funny way, but you have to put it like this to understand what the love of God is. You see, God doesn't love us because we are good, but God loves us in spite of the fact that we are not good, that God actually wants us to be in heaven and he sent his son into the world to die for us because he wants us to live with him in eternity. Now, don't ask me to explain why. You know, but this is this is the, this is love, and love is something which is not just powerful that it binds us to to each other and binds us to Him, but love is something that goes beyond rational explanation. You know this, of course, if you have children and you see your children falling in love with the wrong people. You know, and you think, how did that happen? And you think, oh no, no, we can't have that. You should break that up. And of course, if it's genuine love, you can't do that. Because genuine love will conquer 
uh, you know, rationality. It will, it will just go beyond these things. You know that we talk about the children only a mother can love, um, and so on. And you say, well, how is that possible? Because love is deeper uh, than mere reason, common sense, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, important though those things are, love is a bond. It is something that ties us uh, to God and to one another, something that ties uh, God to us. And uh, we experience it, we know it, we live in it, we, we, uh, it, it changes our lives, it affects us very deeply, but we can never really get to the bottom of it. We can't explain it in words. We can only live it. And then, of course, of obtaining salvation by Christ, there is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so the kind of people who go around saying, well, you know, Muslims go to heaven through Muhammad and Buddha, Buddhists go to heaven through the Buddha and whatever. These people are well-meaning, but they are wrong. Uh, there aren't many different ways to heaven. There is only one way to heaven, and we need to say this. You see, uh, we wouldn't hesitate uh, to do this if we were talking about medical cures. Uh, you know, if you, had, if you knew the right answer, how to cure a disease, uh, and you were dealing with a lot of people who had who had quack medicine uh, or whatever, you wouldn't say, oh, well, that's all right. You know, you just go your way and see where you get. You would say, no, that's quackery. That's not right. Uh, you know, that's not going to cure you. You need to go this way. And the same is true in spiritual terms. Only Christ can save. We live in a world where that's a very unpopular message. It's very divisive. Uh, but it is the truth, and we need to hold to it. Then we move on to the church. What is the church? The church is uh, the body of people who bear witness to the gospel of Christ in the world. The church has the authority uh, given to it uh, to proclaim this word, to determine how this should be done, uh, and so on. But it has no authority to go beyond what is revealed to us in the scriptures. This is what the point that is made. There are councils when the problems arise uh, Christians get together, they try to sort out what the answer is. These councils uh, try to come to some conclusion, they try to make uh, you know, a, a pathway through uh, the thicket of different opinions and so on, uh, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. It's not always easy to discern what the right way forward is, uh, and councils of the church do not have uh, ultimate authority. They can be overturned. They are fallible. Uh, and we need to remember this. You see that uh, they, they may be, be leading us in a particular way for a particular time, but their decisions are always at least potentially revisable, and we need to keep them in their place. And then purgatory. You may think, what's that got to do with the church? Well, at the time of the Reformation, you see the Pope claimed the power to be able to take people out of purgatory. Uh, that you could pay money uh, to the church and you could get time off in purgatory. So you didn't, uh, the, if you had to spend several million years there paying off the debt of your sin, uh, but you know, you, you sort of did something in this world, or you bought, you bought uh, uh, time off, that was what an indulgence was, you see. The word indulgence is basically time off in purgatory. And the Pope would sell these things, of course, to make money for himself. And that is what 
so angered Martin Luther. And Martin Luther's complaint was, who is the Pope? The Pope has no jurisdiction beyond this world. The church is an institution for the here and now, for this life, not for the next life. Uh, when you die, you pass out of the jurisdiction of the church into the arms of God. So for the church to claim, uh, you know, to be able to determine what happens to somebody after they die uh, is false. You can't do this. And that's why this is there. The church is limited in time and space. Then the ministry, of course, ministering in the congregation, only people who are fit for this purpose should be chosen and appointed to it. Not just anybody can do this. You see, we, we, we are all equal in the sight of God, but we have different gifts, and the church has to discern who has what. Then speaking in the congregation, uh, again, um, this is the question of uh, how do you, you know, how do we worship? What do we do? And to us it seems natural and normal uh, that we should do this in our own language. But of course, at the time of the Reformation, that was not normal. Uh, people worshipped in Latin. Latin was the common language of the church. Now, to you and me, this may seem very strange. Why, didn't, you know, why would anybody have a problem uh, about changing from Latin into English? Well, one of the reasons was that Latin had the feel of being somehow more sacred. And that when you were talking about the things of God, uh, you were talking at a different level. You see something higher. Now, the only way I can explain this today is to say that when we talk about certain things, particularly sexual things, I'm not going to do that tonight, but if I were going to do that, I would probably have to go into Latin. <laughs> you know, uh, explain the, the organs of the body in Latin. This is not because we don't have English words for these things, and it's not because you don't understand them when you hear them, which you do, I suppose, just about any time you cut somebody off on the road or take their parking space or something like that. But we don't use these words because they are regarded as vulgar. You see? And this is how people in the 16th century thought about using English in worship. It was kind of dragging God down into the gutter, you know, using the language of every day when you're talking about something sacred and holy and different and special. And the reformers had to say, no, that's wrong. Uh, that you have to be able to express your faith in the language that you understand in a way that makes sense. It's not a mystery hidden away that nobody gets. It's something which uh, you can know and you can, you can experience and you can share with others. Very important point. Then we move on to the sacraments. I, I've got to rush a bit now because we're running out of time. Very important. The sacraments are the means of grace, the way in which the grace of God is communicated to us. They do not depend on the worth or the worthiness of the minister. See, this is a mistake people make. They think their pastors have to be perfect. Uh, and if they're not, there's something wrong with what they're doing. But you see, when we celebrate communion, for example, as we did tonight, it's not the minister who is, who is doing this. Uh, it's not up to him, uh, particularly. It is God who is, who is giving us the, the privilege and the opportunity to celebrate this. The validity of what we're doing 
depends on him and his word and his mission and ministry, not on uh, whether the man or woman doing it uh, is a good person. Because, of course, if that were the case, nothing would be valid. I mean, none of us is worthy in the sight of God to do that. Baptism, of course, baptism is what brings us into the church. It is a proclamation of the need to die and be born again in Christ. The Lord's Supper, which we celebrated tonight, this is how we come uh, into fellowship to remember the death of Christ on the cross for us. Those who eat and drink unworthily, who don't believe, but who, who nevertheless are somehow part of the visible church, uh, it has no effect on them. You know, uh, you, you, can't, uh, you, you can't be made a, a Christian. The sacraments are not like a vaccination or something like this, you know, that you can sort of, or a medicine that you can sort of pour down people and it cures them whether they realize it or not, uh, you know, whether they accept it or not. It's not like this. Uh, you have to have faith. You have to be in connection with God for these things to work. Then of both kinds, when we take communion, we take it, the bread and the wine together. Uh, this was because the medieval church had taken the wine, the cup, away from the people. We don't really know why. Some people say it was for hygiene reasons, maybe. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, but they said, all you have, the bread is enough. You know, ordinary people get the bread. Only the priest has the bread and the wine uh, together. And they said, no. Uh, when Jesus gave it to his disciples, he gave them both uh, the bread and the wine, uh, the bread which is the brokenness of his body, the blood which is the life uh, that, you know, that is poured out for us, and we must have both. So we have to restore this. Then Christ's one oblation. Christ's sacrifice was made once and for all. It cannot be repeated. Uh, it can be uh, celebrated. It can be remembered, but not repeated. The marriage of priests, this was forbidden, of course, at the time of the Reformation, but priests should be allowed to marry. Why were they not allowed to marry? Well, the theory was that they were on a higher level. Uh, they lived like angels in the world. You see, they were no longer just normal human beings. And they say, no, the priest is not above the people. The priest is one of the people. So the marriage of the priests, you see, the priests should belong uh, within the community of the faithful of excommunicate persons, people who uh, are thrown out of the church. Uh, this is the discipline. You see that the church, we accept everybody who comes if they are repentant sinners. If they are not repentant, and I believe there's at least one candidate in the present presidential election who has told the world that he's never repented of anything, um, then you are excommunicate in the church. We cannot have people like this. You see? Uh, if, you, uh, if you defy the church, if you, if you mock the teaching of the church, then uh, you must be put out of the church. You cannot uh, be allowed uh, to, to participate, to make a mockery of uh, the, the faith and of the teaching uh, which we have. This is part of our discipline. Then the last few articles, the so-called Anglican ones, I've called, these are things which are specific to the Church of England. It isn't to say that they can't be anywhere or any, anybody, but the Church of England had to make its own decisions about certain things. One was about tradition. And I said, traditions can vary. Different churches will do things in different ways, and that's okay, you know. Uh, as long as they're honoring Christ, it doesn't really matter. 
the homilies, the homilies are a series of sermons which explain the doctrine. They were, they were written for priests to stand and preach in the church because people at that time had no training. They didn't know how to preach. You know, no one had ever taught them this. And so the homilies were written, these, pre, these sermons, homily means sermon. These sermons were, were, were written and said, well, if you don't know how to preach, say this, preach this. This is the doctrine. This is the meaning of what we are doing. The consecrating of ministers, this is given to the church as the way in which we proceed to ordination, you know, how, the, the pattern of training and so on. And again, this will vary from one country, one place to another. Uh, it's not always a standard thing, but it has to be done and it has to be done in a certain way. Then the civil magistrates, you see, we, we live in, a, in, in different countries. How should the church relate to the country in which you are living? Uh, well, uh, we have to respect the civil magistrates, the, 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 the people who run the government and so on, but keep them in their place because they don't run the church uh, and we don't run them. Uh, you know, they do what they have to do and we do what we have to do and we try to keep uh, uh, our spheres, our separate spheres, uh, independent of one another. Then the appendix at the end, first of all, of Christian men's goods. What's that all about? This is basically against communism. Not, of course, what you think of when you say communism, but the idea, you often get this, uh, you've got this in the early church, and you still get this today sometimes. People get very enthusiastic, and they want to start a commune. They think the church is one big commune. You know, we all pool our resources. We'll go and live together in a big house, uh, and... Uh, you know, everybody will have will share everything in common. This never works. Uh, you know that it's not meant to be like this. That we are given uh, the right to have our own uh, things, our own private property, not in order to be selfish, uh, but in order to, uh, uh, to to administer the goods of this world in a better way. So this is uh, communism in this sense, primitive communism, sharing of everything um, is not. Uh, required, and then of a Christian man's oath, you see, some people said, "Oh, I don't, I, I, I don't take an oath. If I go into court, you know, and it says swear on the Bible. Oh no, no, I don't do that. You just got to take my word for it." And they said, "No, this is this is not this is no good. You have a right. You should swear. You should be. You're able to swear an oath in a legal way uh, in order to." Uh, to demonstrate to the world that you are telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, uh, and that you can say, so help me God, and you are not blaspheming against him when you do this. You see? And we must not assume uh, that just because somebody uh, claims to be a Christian, that this means that they will automatically always tell the truth. Uh, we need to uh, remind people of this. We need to hold them to account over this, because we are still sinners. Well, there you are. There are the 39 articles. They're a minimum. Um, this, is, this is what we believe. You can add to that. There are lots of things they don't talk about. They don't talk about the second coming of Christ, for instance. They don't talk about uh, spiritual gifts, charismatic gifts, speaking in tongues, things like that. Nothing, nothing is said about this. Uh, you can have different opinions about these things. But on these matters that they, they lay down, these are fundamental. These are the basis. If you don't accept this uh, and don't see the way that it works, then you really don't belong 
in the Anglican Church, uh, because this is, uh, this is what we stand for. I'm going to stop there. Coffee. First of all, kind of a comment, I would like to recommend to everybody in the room here, if you don't have one, to buy, beg, borrow, or heaven forbid, steal a copy of the 39 Articles book that you have written. It's a very, very deep and wonderful book that will answer more questions than you can imagine. And the second is a, is a question that I'd like to throw out. What effect did the Cromwellian uh, Commonwealth have on the operation of 39 Articles? Could you repeat the questions when I asked? Oh, <laughs> well, first of all, <laughs> you can beg, borrow, and steal my book. That's fine by me. I don't get any royalties for, for it. I tell you that straight away. Uh, it all goes to the Latimer Trust, which is an organization I work for, so I, I'm happy to recommend it to you without you know, any personal interest in it. Thank you, uh, Coffee, for saying that. Uh, question of Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century. Well, um, th that's a very complicated thing, but it didn't really have any effect on the 39 Articles as such because uh, at that time what they wanted to do was revise the Articles. Um, you know, to add to them. And uh, this was something that, that was going on. See, the articles didn't just appear out of nowhere. I mean, uh, they actually went through a number of revisions. And, and the question was, at what point do we stop revising? Uh, you know, and this was one of the issues that was, was debated at the time. And what happened then was they discovered that Revising the articles would be too difficult, so they started afresh with what became the Westminster Confession. But the Westminster Confession, the Presbyterian Confession, as we have it today, began as an attempt to revise the 39 articles. That was where it came from. Um, it's not a denial of the 39 articles, it's just you know, going further. You mean what? What do theologians do? Yeah. You mean how? What? What? What is theology? Like, how do we spend our time? Well, unlike, 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 like parish priests who play golf from Monday to Saturday. I mean, what do we do? Uh, <laughs> Uh -huh. Yeah, well, I mean, I've, yeah, the articles, see, they're like a tip of an iceberg. Um, the, you have to understand, I, I didn't, wasn't able to go into this uh, earlier, we just haven't got the time, but um, in the days before, you know, printing and so on, you had to explain your faith or explain your beliefs in a, in a concise way, so that the the, the, the whole idea of having articles, they were meant to be memorized by people and then expounded. So they, they, they were sort of like key points. You know, you learn this and this and this and this and this. But anybody who was getting up to, to talk about it, to explain it, would, would go on at great length. And there's lots of complications and, you know, things that, that, that aren't clear on the surface and are, that have to be looked into. And this is, this is part... 
partly what the homilies do. I mean, they expand much more, uh, you know, on the meaning of the articles. And you can read about the debates there. And this is what theologians basically do. Uh, you know, they, they, they try to work out the implications of these things. And, uh, and there are lots of hidden implications. Uh, you know, there's plenty to keep people busy. I, I, mean, I can't go into it tonight because we're running out of time, but, but believe me, there's plenty for us to be doing. One final burning question for Dr. Gray. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Ah, yeah. <laughs> well, it's Catholic in the sense that the scriptures belong to the whole church. I mean, the, the Bible is not an Anglican Bible. Uh, you, you know, I mean, it, it's given to the whole, the whole of the Christian church. Every, everybody has the Bible. Um, the, the, the issue is not this. The issue is, uh, can, you, can you teach things and make things compulsory that are not in the Bible, you know, that are in addition to the Bible? Uh, and on this point, of course, the, the, the reformers said, no, you cannot. Um, and one of the reasons you cannot is in order to retain the Catholicity. Uh, I mean, let me give you an example. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church today believes that the Virgin Mary was conceived without sin. Uh, this is the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, um, which is coming up on the 8th of December, in case you're wondering. Um, you know, and this is an article of belief, and has been since 1854. But Thomas Aquinas, who was the great theologian, uh, of the church, the recognized today the great doctor of the Catholic Church, didn't believe that. You know, I mean, he actually spoke out against it back in the 13th century. And so the question is, well, how can Aquinas be a doctor of the church when he denied this, when now it's compulsory? If you live in the 20th, 21st century, uh, you have to believe it. If you lived in the 13th century, you didn't. Um, you know, in fact, you could deny it and still be a doctor of the church. And, and really what the article is saying is, no, this is no good. You see, um, this is what happens if you add to the scriptures because the New Testament was given in the first generation of the church. It has not been added to since then. And so therefore, by subscribing to what the New Testament teaches, I am subscribing to what the apostles taught uh, and believed, and no more than that. This isn't to say that I might not believe things that you know uh, beyond that. I, you know, I might hold these beliefs privately, but I haven't got the right to teach it as compulsory, uh, as an integral part of, of of Christianity. And it was to reaffirm the Catholicity of the Church, not just in space but over time as well, uh, that that is there. You see, and the challenge put out to other branches of, of, of the Christian world, other parts of the Christian world, saying, well, have you departed from this? You see, how, are you imposing on somebody now something that was never imposed before? And thereby, at least implicitly, excommunicating them. 
you know, in, in some way. You say, no, the communion of saints, you see, that, that we, we are one with the saints of all ages, and this is meant to reaffirm that. That's the purpose of it. You've got a question. Ah, oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, there are two. There are two passages which are which are brought up for this. One is one Peter chapter three verse eighteen, uh, where it says that you know he went to preach to the spirits which were imprisoned in the days of Noah. So that's First Peter chapter three verse eighteen. Um, some people will refer to that, and the other uh, passage is Ephesians chapter four. Uh, verses, I think it's verses 8 and 9. Uh, you can look, uh, check it. I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyway, quoting from Psalm 68, where it says, He who ascended up into heaven descended to the depths and, and uh, led captivity captive, uh, you know, is the phrase, which is taken to mean that he first descended, to, you know, as low as he could go in, uh, to hell in, in order to, uh, to take captivity captive. Captivity being the devil, you see, having taken us, and, and he sort of rescues us from the devil. That's the interpretation which is put on that. So it's not directly stated in so many words, but that's been the interpretation of those two passages. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4 and I think, I think it's verses 8 and 9. I haven't got my Bible with me, but it's around there. You'll see it, you know, you read through there. Dr. Bray, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's give him a round.